This is the Innovation Engine Podcast from Three Pillar Global, your home for conversations with industry leaders on all things digital transformation and innovation. Welcome back to the Innovation Engine. I'm Scott Varho, Three Pillars Chief Evangelist and your host, and I'm excited to be speaking today with Sejal Amin, alongside my colleague, Elizabeth Beller. Sejal is the newly named Chief Technology Officer at Shutterstock, where she has a broad mandate to drive Shutterstock's digital transformation into a full-service creative platform for hundreds of thousands of creative professionals around the world. She previously held technology and product leadership roles at Coros, Thomson Reuters, and Thomson Scientific. In a career that spans more than 25 years, Sejal has led product and technology teams of more than 1,000 to shift how they think and work resulting in experiences that delight customers and drive business growth. Sejal, without further ado, excited to have you and, and really excited for you. I know you just started in, in your new role at Shutterstock and uh, uh, wanted, to, wanted to, first of all, just let you know that we really appreciate you being with us. That has to be quite, quite an experience being in a new leadership role. How, how are things going? Well, they're going well. And I, I'm recording this with you just about 30 days in or having passed that 30-day mark. And it's been an incredible experience so far. Busy, albeit, but incredible. Do the 30 days feel like they've gone by really fast or it's been an eternity or both? No, no. So I feel like 30 days and I've been here for a very long time. Um, I've settled right in. The environment's really comfortable and it's a great culture. Oh, that's, that, is, that is fantastic. So l- let's set the stage for our topic by, by just diving right in. What do you see as the biggest distinctions between software development projects and building software products? Well, you've chosen a topic or we've chosen a topic that's near and dear to my heart. And I think we could spend an entire podcast just talking about this one question. Um, but um, let's dig into a few things to help us get moving. Um, And I think I want to start with a really timely example because I'm going through it now. Many of you are probably going through your annual planning operating um, planning cycle, right? And Mm -hmm. the funny thing about project models is that they quite often assume projects um, will magically finish on December 31st and new ones start on January 1st. And while we all desperately wish for things to be just that predictable, we all know that that's not really how product development works. Mm-hmm. It's not how the markets that we operate in work. And it's really not how customers expect us to work, right? So I think product-oriented companies think about funding and timeframes very differently. They recognize that products are never finished, at mm-hmm. least not until they're retired, right? And while they might adjust funding rate over time, they do that based on business results and uh, business strategy. In this model, we don't see fatalistic budget changes on December 31st. Instead, we're constantly monitoring product performance and market opportunity. And we justify our ups and downs and run rate based on continuous incremental delivery. Mm. And I think the side effect here is that we reinforce the idea of building in small batches because we're assessing product outcomes and business impacts more frequently than just once a year. So... While I think budgeting and timing is the first big difference, the second one to call out is staffing. Project-driven organizations are more likely to shuffle their teams around and team structure to match the needs of their project. Mm-hmm. And in project mode, we talk about uh, sending individuals to the work. And in product mode, we, we play the game of moving people around. <laughs> and mm-hmm. the, the unit of performance is the individual and not the team. And 
because of that, they end up moving people around constantly um, because it perceives that it gives them the best return on investment. And of course, that comes with side effects. Um, individuals lose their sense of team, product knowledge gets lost, and mm-hmm. code ownership gets lost. And mm-hmm. engineers, I think these days, just don't want to hang out in that kind of environment. Product-oriented organizations, on the other hand, um, focus on team stability. So instead of sending individuals to the work, they send work to the teams. Mm-hmm. And I think this is just one of the ingredients of building high-performing teams. I think long-lasting teams build performance over time. You keep them together, you give them vision, you give them purpose, you allow them to learn from one another and you get out of their way and let them do what they do, right? One of, one of my favorite lines, and, and Elizabeth has had to hear me say this so many times, but yeah. um, you know, that Marty Kagan was quoting John Doerr when he said that it, you know, to build great products, you need missionaries, not mercenaries. Right. And and we have taken that a little bit further and said we need mission driven teams, um, not mercenary teams. And it's it's kind of ironic. And I, I'll talk about this inside Three Pillar all the time. Technically, we're we are mercenaries, right? We're an outsourcing vendor, but our differentiation is that we are we building teams that are hungry for a mission. They want to sink their teeth into something and make a difference. Right. Um, and so you know what you're talking about absolutely resonates with me. But I think the the insight around funding is a really great one. Um, because that that model and, and every organization I've been at, we play the budgeting process and I'm like, this isn't how this is going to play out. Like, I need to be able to say enough pretty things in front of enough people who are going to give me money. And then I'm going to go spend it in the best possible way every single sprint. That has nothing to do with what I told the executives I was going to do. Or, I mean, directionally, of course, yes. Yeah. But, but it's just, I mean, it's just unrealistic. It's just not connected to how products are actually built. And it, and it would be irresponsible for me to act on yesterday's assumptions today, you know, when I don't have evidence that that is the best place to put put your money, so it is it is really interesting. I've I've been in that kind of reality distortion layer of well, let's tell them it's a project and it needs one year of funding, and that's fine because they won't shut it down after a year anyway. So yeah, um, <laughs> so that's interesting. Sajel, how have you convinced others to make that leap from? Uh, project to product, like what are some of the the arguments you use to help convince them? I mean, you've just used some really good ones with us, but what are some of the things you hear them say that make you realize, oh, oh, this this person really needs to understand the difference between project and product, and why why product could be, uh, you, you know, a more effective um, mindset? Yeah, it's a really great question. So um, when I think about projects, projects are usually um, time-bound and cost-bound, right, Elizabeth? And I think the consequence that's as old as time is that affects quality. And so if organizations are still running separate build and run teams, I think that that impacts quality over time. It becomes a compounding problem. And so one of the key selling points here is that I think product-oriented organizations have a higher sense of awareness of the impacts on poor quality because they're more in tune with what product and business outcomes they're driving through incremental incremental delivery. So if you're working in an organization where you don't think that you have a clear line of sight to what outcomes you're influencing through your work, that tends to be a huge red flag. Mm-hmm. And look, it's one of the big talking points in, in a conversation. <laughs> that three-legged stool and what compromise mm-hmm. is being made. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the other thing, and again, I'm probably living some of this now, I think 
it requires executives to have an enterprise view of their product taxonomy or their portfolio or their product ecosystem. The, the, the language, the language being used could vary from context to context. I think it's a really important way to ground ground leaders and ground the organization, the entire organization, to understand that. Because at the end of the day, it gives you a way to um, traverse the organization, communicate in a language that means the same to everyone. You know, and that grounding, I think, helps. Look, it helps executives and the people who work for them make good decisions. She's she's whispering, Scott. Yes, I'm whispering. (laughs) Someone's going to hear me over there. She didn't want anyone to hear her say that. (laughs) (laughs) That's beautiful. Um, (laughs) To be revealed later. No, but uh, it's the the point on quality. I think is really interesting because you talk about compounding uh, the compounding nature of of problems and, Mm. and especially quality issues. And I've always found it fascinating that so much of quality is not written into the user stories, right? We don't tell you know engineers, I expect this to have a you know ninety nine point nine nine percent uptime, and I expect this to you know load in under a second, or right, like all of these you know performance and qualitative, or I expect it to be maintainable and easy, easily changed later. These are facets that are are under the hood; they're un, they're unspoken requirements. Mm-hmm. But the fact is, is that if you don't pay attention to those things, you have compounding problems on one side. But if you're able to do it well, you have compounding interest on the other. Your ability to make medium and long-term value, because a little bit of value over a longer period of time can be a lot of value. And, yes. and you know, obviously it goes up from there. But you love that compounding interest nature of digital product if you're on the if you're on the good side of this equation. Um, if you're if you're suffering from bad quality, then it's uh, uh, that's much more difficult to realize. Yes. No, I completely agree with you on that. So, so actually, on the, so kind of pivoting a little bit on that, um, yep. you know, we're we're really big believers here about minimizing time to value. Love it. Sure. Um, yep. We want to get something out there. We want to start that learning cycle as soon as possible. Um, obviously, start the revenue cycle as soon as possible. That helps as well. Again, you know, uh, value is a fact. Time is a factor of value. When you talk about value stream management, no, this is a term that that we are seeing more and more um, in more and more places. And and I understand you're you're an advocate of, of value stream management. What what how would you explain that in layman's terms? Really, really simple. I think a value stream is an end-to-end set of activities that collectively, to your point, and just a few moments ago, collectively creates value for a customer. Mm. Super simple. So when you're developing a value stream map, you're illustrating the steps that your organization goes through to deliver a unit of value to a customer. And I think roughly speaking, if there's a customer at the end of the process, that's a value stream. Okay. So in when I think about product development and um, engineering, I think delivery and operations is representative of a value stream. If you run a website, a mobile app, I don't know, an API, you're working within the context of a value stream. And would um, that would that include any analog experience, customer experience? Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off there, but any um, offline customer experiences as well, or? Is that um, out of the scope of a value stream? No, I no, I think I think it's inclusive of that as well. Okay. Yes. Yes. And the thing that um, what I was going to say is the thing that's drawn me to value stream thinking is just how complex product development is, mm-hmm. and the broad and um, the, say the broad and the diverse range of skills and 
people and organizations involved in developing and operating a successful digital product. And so it's that online and to your point, it's that offline experience as well. Mm. Well, you've just you just sold me on spending more time with value stream management as a framework um, because it really it really does amaze me sometimes how simplistic people people think like oh I just need engineers and and we're we're good to go um, and there's obviously a lot more that's needed uh, to build great to build value basically um, but to build great products but also to build the the to realize the value from those products they're only part of a they're usually only part of a larger ecosystem of, of factors yeah that's interesting. Sajal, how do you talk to your teams about value stream management on more of like a data? You gave like a good sort of philosophical explanation. How do you talk to them about it on a day-to-day basis? Yeah, um, that's a really great question, Elizabeth. So just taking a step back, you know, when I started my career in engineering management, which was a long time ago, I won't date myself. Um, People like me, including me, that many years ago, we were really operating in a very narrow, narrow awareness of the value streams that they operated in, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm going to say the project paradigm dominated back then. And our job and our only job was to deliver what we were told. And so my awareness of the other people and organizations in the value stream, whether it be upstream or downstream, honestly, it was quite poor. And so I had very little ability to improve the value stream and to improve the outcomes that the value stream delivered. And so um, I'd say largely in my past 10 years, I've been all about building teams with that value stream awareness with a focus on breaking down barriers between product management and engineering so that we're improving the quality of what we produce and the speed at which we're producing it. And so when I talk to teams, right, we're talking about value, we're talking about quality, and we're we're talking about speed. And so... Um, I think visualizing the value stream is the first step and being able to understand and improve value stream performance. And again, when we're talking about value stream performance, Elizabeth, I like to tie it to team performance. All too often, um, I think when we talk about engineering organizations, we talk about productivity like it's a thing we can tweak. And so this is another topic that's um, near and dear to my heart is the difference between productivity and performance. To me, those are two very, very different things. Oh, you are singing my song. <laughs> right, right. And so when I talk about value streams, right, to just close the thread on the question um, that Elizabeth asked, I'd like to talk about value stream performance, team mm. performance, and taking a look at how work and information flows through the system, the people in it, where how well the system is working, where information stops or is bottlenecked, and how how you can then build a foundation on which to make improvements. And when you talk about it in those terms, there isn't anyone that says, hey, I don't, I don't want to talk about, <laughs> about better performance. Right, right. right. <laughs> because it, it affects it. It affects the customer. It affects the business. It affects the team. It affects everything around you. I think we're starting to hear a lot more people in the product development world being more comfortable talking in, the, in those terms. I noticed on your LinkedIn profile that you had a statement that said, in the next five years, we'll see value stream management extend to every point of inter- enterprise value delivery, not just software development. I'm curious about, about that statement and how that looks to you. Yeah. So I think for product developers like myself, the value proposition is super clear. Um, I think the three areas of focus, so continuous value stream budgeting, 
and the emphasis of big annual planning events, which um, I talked <laughs> about when we opened here, continuous product value stream and business outcome measurement, and the inherent really good and positive consequences on product and solution quality. And then the last thing is there's we are going to have a clear understanding of the efficiency and effectiveness of the value stream with insights on how to improve it with a focus on performance, not productivity, because those are two really, really different things. And I don't think anything or any business in the world wouldn't want to take advantage of that, right? Who doesn't want to talk about those things? And, and so when I think about it more broadly to the point, to the point uh, or the quote that you just said, I think anything that a customer has is a value stream. So the application of the framework is fairly wide. Um, there are clear applications outside of product development and operations. Um, and I've seen some success in marketing, in sourcing and hiring, and sometimes even in sales. So I think it goes, I, it goes beyond product development. I think there's broader applicability. Mm-hmm. But just to share a a personal point on this, because it fascinates me that there are still companies out there that want to do build teams and build it versus uh, uh, operate teams. And I'm like, no, that's, we got away from that. Remember DevOps? Like that was the whole point. (laughs) You bring these things back together. Um, So fascinating to see that that still happens. And and literally in in a a job before Three Pillar, I was asked to do that several times. And I was like, no, no chance um, will I allow that to happen on my watch. Um, But the next thing that happened was interesting. After I left that organization, instead mm-hmm. of being aligned by product, yeah, they aligned the teams by back end, front end, and then they were. So it's always sort of there's a solid line somewhere and a dotted line somewhere, right? right. Um, but they made the solid lines into back end engineering because they were having quality issues. And I was like, but you just took the value off the table. That's no longer what they're talking about is providing more value. They're talking about being better at back end engineering, and yes. that. And I always wanted their focus to be first and foremost, obsess about the value you are providing because we are expensive and we want to yeah. return way more than our company spending on this. Um, Interesting. Yeah. But it's it's still there today, this this engineering mindset of if we were better at back-end engineering, our problems would be solved. It's like, yeah, typically not. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's, that's not usually how this works. <laughs> so, you know, uh, when, when you joined Shutterstock, CEO Paul Hennessy... Um, said in your press release that that hiring you is going to help Shutterstock continue its digital transformation. I'm quoting here. Digital yeah. transformation to a full-service creative platform that dem- dem- democratizes creativity, pushes creative boundaries, and provides unparalleled experiences for our customers and contributors around the world. That's a big statement. Huge. <laughs> and no problem. I'll have yeah. it done before the end of the year. That's, end of the quarter. Right? That's amazing. I bet I bet he's thrilled with that news. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so so talk about that. Uh, what, how uh, how do you plan on going about doing that? Yeah, so Shutterstock is such an interesting place, and like many others, this portfolio has grown grown through acquisition, right? Mm. So in its current state, parts of it, like when I got here, require investment in that integration, so that it enables the strategy that Paul so eloquently described. And Shutterstock's origins are a stock photo company. And we're evolving into a platform of many capabilities that enables creators to tell amazing stories. So operationally, this means that we too are taking the project product journey in which we're managing a portfolio of assets that provides these capabilities to our customers and, and contributors. And all of the things that 
we've talked about today and we haven't covered. We've only just touched the tip of the iceberg. All of those things are coming to life in this environment. I see it all here, which is why, um, which is why I'm so excited to be here. You know, there's so many interesting, so many interesting things to uncover. But the journey from taking Shutterstock from a stock photo company to one that um, is a platform of many capabilities that's enabling creators is is the great part. That is exciting. Yeah, yeah, that sounds like a big challenge, but it should be exciting. Can you talk a little more specifically about how you see that that changed vision playing out as you move from from being a stock photo company to creative storytelling? Yeah, sure. So like I mentioned just a minute ago, this company's largely grown through it's grown through acquisition. So there's been a number of assets that have come into the portfolio that will that have brought new capabilities to the table, Elizabeth, that will help us enable that journey. But right now we're in the process of assessing what that looks like to us come next year. What capabilities are we going to invest in and really double down on and treat it the way that we talked about, right? This is a marketplace. And into that marketplace, like I said, we're... um, we're extending that marketplace so that when creators come and they're dropping an asset off, that they have the tools available to their disposal to do the creative work that mm-hmm. um, they would have to do outside of the platform. Mm-hmm. So from a from an engineering and building perspective, it's about building those assets out. Now, operationally, it's like I said, it's that typical journey where we're looking at a set of small projects and we're pivoting to a portfolio where we have products and capabilities and services that support those capabilities and understanding what that spread and sprawl looks like, what the right investment is. Mm-hmm. And then as an organization, how are we now pivoting people to work on those things, stay fixed on those things? What data are we gathering? The data that's coming in, the data that's going out, that's enabling us to make better decisions. We're, we're, we're literally establishing all of that foundation as we speak. Awesome. And, that is super exciting. Super, super exciting. <laughs> super exciting. And, and, and it's it's rather um, uh, encouraging, discouraging, uh, uh, comforting that so many companies are, are struggling with these themes, right? Yeah. Um, it's not it's not unusual, but uh, uh, the opportunity for for what David, you know, David DeWolf, our CEO, talks about another wave of digital products that are coming. Um, just to, right. and and I think he's right because so much of us, so much of business doesn't have this right. So obviously the products uh, can can. There's a long way to go on those products. A lot of room to add a lot more value and to be more usable, more more valuable, more transformative in the way we we live and work, uh, yeah. which is which is pretty yeah. cool. You know, in one of your articles, since you you mentioned data and and you, yeah. you mentioned in in an article for Forbes that you know. Part of the transition from project to product is 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 around data and metrics. Uh, that that has to be a core focus. And you mentioned earlier about performance versus productivity, which yeah. I love um, because there, uh, gosh knows I, I run into so many people who want to talk to me about you know how many points <laughs> per sprint are we going to. It's like yeah. no, 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 we're not. Uh, let's not talk about that. I I will stop a sprint if I can get more value by stopping a sprint. <laughs> um, uh, so I'm more focused on, on value than, than uh, throughput, but. But but talk to us a little bit more about that. Like, what kinds of metrics do you do you tend to uh, focus on? You talked about speed. What do you mean by speed? Um, curious. Yeah, yeah. So just on the topic of metrics, I think 
especially in large organizations where they are super functionally aligned. I think if all of the groups are not oriented around the thing and the thing being the product, the capability, um, or whatever language you want to use to describe the thing that they're building, if they're not aligned, those metrics, it creates misalignments and behaviors quite candidly that work against each other, right? Completely undermining the transformation that um, the enterprise the enterprise is on, and so when when I when I think about metrics, I I like to think about a body of metrics that tell us everything about the health of the product, that tell us about the health of the customer who's using that product, that tell us something about the health and the culture of the team that's building that product that tell us mm. something about the system, right? The, the, and when I say the system, the system we're supporting. So there's, um, there's delivery performance, there's system performance, there's all of those things that happen. Okay, so if you've, if you've read some of Nicole Forsgren's research, her DORA report, it talks a lot about that information that, that tells you about the health of the ecosystem. Yeah. So to me, I, looked, I like to think about an entire body of data and really product and engineering and business leaders have to get to that cross-functional alignment so that we are having a conversation together so that a set of metrics isn't viewed in isolation across functions without understanding what the depends what, without understanding what the dependencies are that's uh, that I think is probably the hardest part right is is understanding yeah. the interdependencies of those metrics and how one moving up or down may or may not be the the one that you should be focused on but that's, what, um, that's always the hardest part, right? Is <laughs> understanding what winning looks like for an organization. Um, and to your to your other question, you asked about speed, right? Mm-hmm. It's what is speed? It's you're you're trying to get value into the customer's hands as fast as you possibly can. And so anything that affects and influences that should be at the top of mind. And once you solve the problem in one place, it just moves to another. And so you kind of need to track that, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. It's interesting, right? Because agility, so agile, um, and then it's, you know, poor cousins. I really, I get so upset when I, I hear that people don't have not read the manifesto. Um, right. You know, but Scrum, uh, this describes speed as velocity. And what they're really describing is capacity. But when when the business talks about speed, we're really talking about how, like, new information, to something deployed into market that's valuable. Yep. That's that speed. So that which is a very different measure of speed than than velocity is. So it's it's one of those things that I think Agile got wrong and that really uh, continued that we're living with a legacy of we we and uh, a lot of the work around DevOps and automation is now trying to come back and deal with some of those uh, some of those gaps in our thinking. But uh being really clear about that has has helped me a lot in in, in helping clients Think differently about how how their team should be structured to get to get value to market faster. Exactly as you said. Yeah, yeah, and I think a lot of organizations, by the way, they're building faster than they're shipping. Right, mm-hmm. it, it tends to happen. I think ninety five percent of the time, for lots of different reasons, it could be because of automation. To your point, the continuous delivery or deployment style just it's not getting them there. But mm-hmm. there's also downstream partners like sales or enablement that are not staffed to cope with deployment frequency. Yep. And so 
that too has to be part of the conversation. Often mm-hmm. they'll have really, really heavyweight or cumbersome go-to-market processes that aren't aligned with continuous cadences. That's right. And I think all, all too often, all too often people think the symptom is it must be an engineering <laughs> not fast enough, right? Or right. they haven't invested enough in, in in the deployment. But if you look closely, the problem could be anywhere. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's downstream. Yep. Well, I, I, it was it, it, along those lines. I thought it was uh, it was sort of fascinating to learn. I've worked in ed tech for a long time, mm-hmm. and one of the interesting things about selling into ed tech is it the market itself cannot consume change. Yes. In between semesters. Uh, or you know, interest semester, I should say, right? So you can deploy changes, and they can even be directionally right. correct, but they will completely throw off your customers because they have a training set of training materials that have been handed out to their teachers or to the or to their faculty or whatever. Yeah. And if it doesn't, ma- if the screen doesn't match exactly what they see in that that handout, that book that was carefully created um, with a version of your product that existed at the beginning of the semester, you have just destabilized that institution entirely. Yeah. Um, and so it was an ed- education that, you know, we can continuously deploy, but we have to manage the change in a cadence that it, that suits our customers and our market. Yeah. Um, and that was, that was an interesting, that was a fun learning curve. Yeah. <laughs> we got faster and they were like, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, um, you know, we, we like to do a, a little speed round to, okay. to round things out. Um, mm-hmm. So if you don't mind. I'm going to throw a couple questions at you and, uh, and, and we'll just, we'll, we'll, we'll do this. You're a longtime New Yorker, which means uh, having strong opinions uh, typically comes with the territory. Um, <laughs> what is your favorite borough? So I'm probably going to give you the answer that everyone gives here. It's Manhattan. I mean, but because where else can you get the diversity, food and culture it has to offer? I think every corner of the city is so fascinating and different. And the thing I love, the thing that's so interesting is it has, and I just read this somewhere, I don't know why I did, 1,700 parks with Central Park just being spectacular. Wow. One can come here and find something different to do every single time. That's that's incredible. Now, I will say other people have, will answer that question differently. So strong well, opinions go. indeed are, are native to New York. And then uh, I understand you're teaching uh, a class or classes at yeah. NYU. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, which ones? Yeah. So um, I will tell you, this has been one of my favorite experiences this year. So I had an opportunity to put together a class for their CTO executive education program. Um, I did that with a colleague and we focused on how to run high-performing technology organizations. It was, it's a topic that I'm particularly passionate about, Um, (laughs) but we worked with so very interesting. We work with NYU and their and their vendor to develop the content structure and record it for the learners. And the topics I covered are org design, how to build an organization that learns, leadership behaviors, uh, diversity and inclusion, hmm. and the use of metrics to enable success. <laughs> really <laughs> topic. Did um, Did you wind up to going into uh, uh, accelerate the the book by Forsgren? I did. did. Yes. I've been handing that book out at Three Pillar like it's candy. Give it out like hotcakes. And by the way, um, I've been giving it out here. Um, It's one of my favorite books. Yes. Um, And I covered that content plus the use of that data, what it means, the flow framework, all of it, you name it. It was a lot of learning material. So I had a lot of fun doing it and I'm hoping that I'm am able to do more. I, I'm talking to them about my next gig there. So 
more to come. That's fantastic. I got I got the chance to teach at the beginning of my career, yeah. and I've sworn that that is how I will end my career. I love it. Um, yeah. I was terrible at it when I was twenty one, but um, <laughs> you know, but I, I I really did enjoy doing it poorly. Um, maybe now I'd, I'd actually be better at it. Um, so having to take that book off the table, what is the most impactful business or technology book you've ever read? Huh? It's a really good <laughs> question. So I would have candidly, I would have read. I always answer that one. Because mm-hmm. it's such an impactful read for CTOs, engineering leaders, and engineers, because it lays a foundation for for the organization. You know, there's so many others that sit in that camp, but Mick Kirstein's Project to Product book is an excellent mm-hmm. one. Sooner, Safer, Happier is an excellent one. All of these are really great reads that um, help you understand the levers that enable just a high performance software delivery organization. Anyone who's worth their salt should know what those things are, what those books are, and the key themes that are taught. But the Accelerate one, which we already made mention of, there's <laughs> there are that really lays the foundation. And then from there, there's many other reads like the ones I mentioned that support the content in this book. So. Yeah. I mean, the, the rigor in that book, for those, for those of our listeners who haven't read it, the rigor behind it is as dry as it makes it to read is fantastic. It really lends a lot more credibility than some of the some of the books that cover the same material or same topics, but don't don't have that same level of rigor. It's uh, it's it's really it was transformative for me. Even though I I kind of felt a lot of those things, but just to see it laid out with that much uh, research behind it was fantastic. Well, thank you. This is uh, this has been fantastic, and uh, and and I can tell we're we're very like minded. Um, <laughs> And uh, we're really excited to hear about how uh, how this chapter goes uh, from yeah. here at Shutterstock for you. Absolutely. Um, you'll be hearing from me more on that for sure. But thank you. Thank you both for having me here. This was a lot of fun. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Sejal. This has been an episode of The Innovation Engine, a podcast from 3Pillar Global. 3Pillar is a digital product development and innovation partner that helps companies compete and win in the digital economy. To learn more about 3Pillar Global and how we can help you, visit our website at 3PillarGlobal.com. Lastly, remember to give us a rating and leave a review on your podcast player of choice. If you have any feedback or guest suggestions, send them over to info at 3PillarGlobal.com. Thanks for listening and see you next time.